The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. Great to celebrate and be together this morning with you. And um, it's a big weekend to celebrate. Graduations. West High was last night. City High is today. Regina is today. So... A lot of high school graduations going on. You can especially uh, pray for the families that had outside receptions planned today. A lot of garages and basements are getting swept out and tables moved inside. So um, if you had yours yesterday, you picked a good weekend for that, didn't you? So good day for that. So but we do. We're excited about uh, all the graduations going on around here. Also just want to piggyback off of uh, what John mentioned about the concept of succession going on here. I ran into somebody. Well, we've been talking about this as a church for a long time. I still, I ran into somebody yesterday and said, where's Jeff going? Jeff's not going anywhere. So, but um, this whole concept, again, um, that Jeff initiated humbly and just uh, opening his hand and saying, uh, you know, and with many other leaders here exploring the process of, of me taking over as lead pastor, but he's still here using his gifts as an executive teaching pastor, and it's a process we've been working on for the last 18 months, 24 months, and really it's an honor, and I um, love this church, love what God's doing here, so um, still by our bylaws, you guys need to approve this, and if you're a member here, so that's again what John mentioned about the absentee ballots. They're out there at the Parkview Connect counter. If you can't make the June 1 meeting, that's one way for you to be involved in that decision and in that process. So um, that's what that was about. And uh, one other thing, too, that uh, I just came across this week, um, I just hadn't thought, sat down to think this through, but 75% of the world's population right now is under a government that is restrictive in religious expression. And so we're in a minority here, and what we're getting to do this morning is a privilege that I think a lot of times we just roll into every Sunday and don't even think about, uh, you know, what we're commemorating this weekend, that people have given their lives so that we would have uh, freedoms to do this. And if we're worshiping Jesus this morning, people have even given their lives to make sure that we have the gospel. People have given their lives in proclaiming Christ. So um, we're very fortunate to be uh, here today for many reasons. So um, the psalm we're looking at today is going to feed right into kind of the theme of the weekend. We're in Psalm 23. I think it's one of the most popular chapters in the whole Bible. If people don't know the Bible, they usually rec recognize Psalm 23. It, if you've been to a funeral, this is the most common passage read at a funeral. And so we're spending seven weeks on it. We're in week five or week six. I'm losing track. We're in verse five today, okay, is what we're going to study. So let me just read. You can read along with me. For a lot of you, this is a familiar psalm. So the words will be up on the screen. You can read with me. But we're going to especially hone in on, chapter, on verse five today of Psalm 23. So let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And now today's verse is verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What we're going to focus on this morning is the goodness of God. That we have a God who loves to provide for his people. You know, there's a psalm we're going to also kind of parallel this morning with Psalm 23, and it's Psalm 34. 
that says this in Psalm 34 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What God's desire for us this morning is that we don't just leave here checking a box, true, false, is God good, true. But he would love this concept to be so true that we are tasting it, that we can truly say to others, like Psalm 34, 3 says, come, let us magnify the Lord together. Let us exalt his name together, that when we join here to worship on Sunday, the hope is that we are people that are celebrating the goodness of God. And as we're singing songs, we're reminding each other of how good God is. That's, that's what God wants from us this morning, is that we would really see and really know and really experience that he is a good God. Um, I think one of the ways the enemy is going to attack you in your relationship with God, he did it clear back in the first couple chapters of the Bible. The way he attacked Adam and Eve was that he got them to doubt the goodness of God. And so once he gets us to start drifting away from the fact that God is good, there's a lot of places that he can take us. He can take us away from really knowing and enjoying and celebrating that we have a God who is good. And so there are times in your life where you're going to ask, is it really worth it to follow God? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus Christ? And this morning just underscores big time that we have a God who is good. And when we really get that, that really should catapult us into a couple unique areas of just being people who are really grateful. A whole new, gives us a whole new incentive for fighting sin in our lives. And it gives us a whole new courage to launch out and help people that don't know that God is good. So we're going to look at how has God been good to us. We're going to look at what he's done for us. And then we're going to look at, do we really know that God is good? What are the gauges in our hearts that show that we really know that God is good? So let me pray over the rain and we'll, we'll keep rolling here. So let's pray. Uh, God, I just, I thank you for the rain that you're watering my garden this morning. And uh, I don't have to do that today. Um, thank you for how you just constantly meet every need that we have. I, I ask you to really make this clear this morning from your scripture that you are good. I know where my heart goes when I doubt that you're good. I've seen what you do in people's lives when we believe the lie that you are not good. So make it really clear, God, this morning that you are God who loves to provide for his people. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look first at what our shepherd provides. Again, verse 5 was, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So three things we see from that one verse. One is that there's a table prepared, a table prepared for us. Some people that have studied Psalm 23 suggest that the last two verses kind of drift away from the shepherd's sheep analogy. And then there's a lot of others who would say that's not necessarily the case. And I'm kind of lining up there. This was written by David. He was a shepherd of sheep through many years in his life. And so as he's writing this about his relationship with God, he's paralleling it with how he used to care for sheep. And so there was terminology where they would consider a, a place that a shepherd would lead his sheep to be like a table, like a plateau, where it'd be a flat piece of ground where you could see predators coming, where you could build a wall around and bring your flock in at night to be safe and protected. It could also be uh, used to talk about a place of pasture where your sheep could eat and feed and where a good shepherd would go in advance of the sheep and pull out any of the noxious weeds or anything there that would not be good for the sheep to eat. So again, it's just that picture of a shepherd caring for sheep by providing a place, uh, a table, uh, for the sheep to be safe, uh, to be fed, and to relax. 
And so it's very similar in our relationship with God. It's interesting that when God talks about a relationship with us and what he does for us, that many times the image of a feast and being at a table with him uh, comes up. I'm going to read a couple verses to you from Isaiah 25. Uh, verses 6 to 8, it just talks about this relationship that God longs for with his people. And listen to how extravagant this banquet is that God provides for his people. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What an amazing picture. Again, in in Jesus' day especially, to be at a meal with somebody was an extension of friendship. Here it is from the heart of God that he longs for this relationship with his people where he can be extravagant in what he's providing for us and and just showering us with his goodness. And I want to make sure this morning that we just make it clear that the way you step into that relationship with God is through responding to the gospel. The gospel means good news. And the Bible's very honest. There's some news that's not so good that nobody in this room deserves to just step into the table with God. Nobody in this room deserves a relationship with God. Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can just stroll up to God and say, hey, I'm at your table. Hey, be extravagant with me. You know, pass me the meat. Like we, we can't do that because of our sin. In fact, Romans 5, 9 says that we are enemies. The Bible says we are objects of God's wrath. And so we are in big trouble. But that's, this is the first experience for us of God's goodness is that he, in spite of our sin, he moved toward us with the gospel, with good news that Jesus Christ came, that he died uh, because of his love for us. uh, He died for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us so that our sins can be forgiven and so that we can have a relationship with God. Jesus didn't come just to make us a little bit better or to tweak us here or there. We were just flat out dead before God because of our sin. Jesus came to give us life. Jesus came to to make us alive so that we can become a child of God. We're no longer his enemies, but now we're his children. And now we're invited at his table because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And that's good news. So the two sides of the good news is, and the first side's not so good, that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. It was powerful this week as I was just dealing with people, just kind of opening up things going on in their lives and things that they've done And they just said, I would never picture that I would have done something like that. I never would. And then I just reminded them of this definition of the gospel, that we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But the good side of that is, but we are far more loved, that he can give you a relationship with God. Okay? That's step one. But but what our shepherd provides here is a table prepared, a, a relationship with him where he loves to bless his children. So the second thing we see in this psalm is that he provides anointing with oil. And I like this one. Uh, So for a shepherd, 
Most of the time, you, you picture this guy leading an entire flock, and he's moving them into green pastures, and he's moving them through the valley. Um, but this whole part about anointing with oil shows a shepherd's concern for each sheep, one at a time. That anointing a sheep's head with oil would serve as a repellent to keep uh, the insects, to keep the flies from flying around uh, the sheep's head. In fact, there was one notorious fly. This, talk about this at lunch. It'll really give you a good appetite. But there was one fly that would fly into a sheep's nostril and lay eggs. Sweet, man. Bring that on, right? So, so the anointing with oil would serve as a repellent from that. This is a shepherd caring individually for each sheep. Or sometimes the oil would be used to provide like a salve uh, for a wound if that sheep got injured on, on the walking through the rocky trails. So again, it just shows one-on-one -on -one concern, a shepherd for uh, the sheep. And that's something God loves to do for his people too. The oil imagery was also used in feasts. If you were at a, you know, you might have your junior varsity feasts or your junior varsity grad parties, but then there's your varsity ones, right? There's your very good ones. And so at a very extravagant feast, one of the features there would be that your head would be anointed with oil. There'd be somebody there either providing that or, or doing that for you as a sense of refreshment. So again, it's a picture of God wanting to, what he provides is refreshment for his people on a one-to-one, -one, very personal basis. I think the picture of that for me is as you're going through your week this week, and as you hit things that just rock you or you're concerned or somebody you really care about is going through a hard time, think of God's promise in 1 Peter 5, 7 where he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In spite of the fact that God is the shepherd, is the savior of millions and millions of people on this planet, he can dial in specifically with whatever need you are going to face this week. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. So he anoints with oil. And the last imagery here is of an overflowing cup. Um, some of the shepherds in that day would have kind of a two-handled basin or cup that he would use to keep replenishing uh, the place where the sheep would get water, particularly when they were in the pens at night. So this is a picture of a shepherd who's just faithful to constantly provide water. It wouldn't be like the, the water bowl for our dog at home every so often is dry and say, hey, who's been taking care of Bubba today? Nobody's taking care of Bubba today. So unlike at our house, this good shepherd is constantly providing water for the sheep. It's an overflowing cup. And it's interesting, Jesus made several references to providing water for his people. In John 4.13, there was a woman that he met at the well, and there was a long story behind this meeting at the well, and Jesus could tell very quickly that this is a woman who had big needs in her life. And so when he was introducing who he is to her and what he could offer her, he said this, he said, everybody who drinks of this water at the well where she had come to get water, everybody drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A few chapters later, Jesus is at a festival in John 7, and he stands up at the end of this festival and he makes this proclamation. He says, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. That picture of an overflowing cup is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in your lives, especially through his Holy Spirit. 
that when you put your faith in Christ, he sends his spirit to come and live within you. And the picture of what the Holy Spirit does for us is, like in Romans 5.5, it says God pours his love into our hearts through his spirit. Just God is constantly reminding you of his love. Um, 2 Timothy 1.7 says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. So just picture Jesus constantly pouring those things into your heart. That's a picture of an overflowing cup. So that's what God provides, a relationship around the table, anointing with oil and an overflowing cup. So let's talk for a couple minutes about how does he provide? How would you describe the way that God provides for his people? Well, the first word we're grabbing this morning is that he provides bountifully. He's very extravagant. He provides way more than we even need. He provides to the fullest extent. The guy in the Bible who probably wrote the most about that is the Apostle Paul. Paul was so in love with Jesus and so convinced of the goodness of God that he just invested his life in making sure as many people as possible knew that God was good. And so that got him into some pretty rough places. He was thrown in, in prison. He was hit with rocks. He was left for dead. Like if anybody could have said, is it really worth it to follow God? Paul could have asked that question. But on the opposite end of that, Paul, on the other hand, just said, my God provides. My God is amazing. My God is generous. Here's a couple verses, Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's pretty strong right there. There's even another one where he goes, and and the superlatives are, are, they just pile on each other. So this is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 11. He's writing to a church that had been going through some very hard times themselves. And in spite of their own personal adversity, they were very generous in providing for the needs of others. So Paul's reminding them about how, how good God is, how extravagant, how bountiful he is in his provision. So as I read it, just capture all the superlatives in these couple of verses. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you can abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way through which, I'm, I'm sorry, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I mean, just you know, sometimes in our lives, we can just kind of go through the motions and say, yeah, God is good. Yeah, I know God is good. True or false, is God good? Yeah, he's good. But it's it's oftentimes when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, we're going through the hard times in our lives that our eyes are open up to see, wow, when I really needed God, there he was. Like he was right there with me. And I think that's why Paul had such a grasp on the goodness of God is that courageously he catapulted himself for the sake of others into some very hard places and God never let him down. God was extravagant. God was bountiful in his provision for him. I said this last hour too. I say, you know, I'm just privileged to be part of a church where I see people who take the goodness of God and it just launches them into places of helping people and serving um, because you know that God is good and God is going to meet your needs bountifully. So that's one thing you notice here. The second thing you notice is that God is going to provide in his timing. 
He's going to provide in his timing. So following Jesus isn't like, well, sign me up for that. Like, I'm going to eat feasts every night. He's going to just bountifully provide all the time. Like, it's going to be easy street. I'll just follow Jesus and I'll be a piece of cake. That's not what the scripture teaches us. In fact, uh, verse 5 comes right after verse 4 in Psalm 23, where these sheep have just gone through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a very dark place. So for a while, they were without light. They were, in a lot of ways, without safety. They were in a dangerous spot. There were many things they were lacking as they were going through that valley. So following Jesus is certainly not always going uh, to be easy. But one thing that drives God's people, even in those hard times, is the assurance that God is good, that God will provide in his timing. Um, I read the U.S. State Department said that there are over 65 countries in our world today where there is active persecution against Christians. So that's about a third of the countries of the world, active persecution against Christians. And so if we go rolling up to some of these believers and say, hey, God's always going to be good. I mean, we could see some horrific scenarios going on in this world. And you could ask, well, where's the goodness of God? What's God doing here for these people? But it's so key to know that on the other end of the valley of the shadow of death, there is Verse 5, there's the table, there's the anointing, and there's the overflowing cup. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, it's interesting, you see the shepherd sheep analogy kind of through the whole Bible, and it's even in the book of Revelation where there's a picture of heaven and God is with his people. And in chapter 7, it just talks about people from every tribe, language, people, and nation worshiping Jesus in heaven. And it says this, it says, therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shepherd them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's the promise. It's going to be in his timing. And for some of us, we may not see that table. We may not eat the richest of meats in this life. But it is certain that it is coming, that God will provide in his timings. In fact, Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19, says that God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. So even if you're never at that table in this life, you are in the presence of God. He is walking with you. He draws especially near to the brokenhearted. Like verse 19 says this, the affliction, the afflictions of the righteous. Um, I'm sorry, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So again, signing up to follow Jesus doesn't make it easier. In some ways it makes it harder, but whatever you're going through, you can be guaranteed that in his timing, God will show you his goodness. So it's bountiful. It's in his timing. I love this concept here that the way he provides for his people is very bold. In fact, a statement there, he says he will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It's like God isn't ashamed to say, here's what I'm going to provide for my kids. Satan, what do you have? Or world, what do you have? Like he's not ashamed in the presence of them. He's going to say, this is what I will do for my kids. 
Sometimes as a dad, you want to be that good dad that, you know, at Christmas, you think you're giving good gifts to your kids, but then they come home and say, oh, so-and-so got this, and so-and-so, because he starts shrinking down, I'm a bad dad, I didn't provide, right? So God never feels that, because God knows what he gives. He boldly knows that the way he provides transcends anything else that he could offer his kids uh, in, this whole, in this whole planet. So um, it's an interesting concept, though, that through the Bible, and, and maybe you've had this too, I have it at times, where you start asking yourself, is it really worth following God? Is he really, because you can look around and there's people that don't know God, they don't believe God. In fact, they're complete, it seems like at times they're completely on the other team, like anti-God. And, and you look at their lives and go, man, it seems like it's going okay for them. You know, in the Bible, people like Psalm, Psalm 73 is an example of that, or the book of Habakkuk. There's different times in the Bible where God's people are asking, is it really worth it? God, are you going to be good to your people? But um, like, for example, in Psalm 73, when you get to verses 25 and 26, and the psalmist sees the glory of God, and he's reminded about how good God is, and he's reminded of um, the futility of life apart from God, then his assurance in the goodness of God is restored. So Again, if that's a place where your heart is this morning, uh, you're not alone. There's others that have battled that in the scripture. But God is not ashamed of how he's going to provide for his people. In fact, this leads into the last one, that he's going to provide for his people according to his glory. And we pull back from verse 3 of Psalm 23, where he said that he's going to lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And again, he's not going to be good to you just because you're cool and he kind of likes you. And I mean, he loves you like crazy, but the, the, the supreme reason why God is going to provide for us and be good to us is because of the defense of his name. His reputation is closely linked to how he provides for you. And he will not defame his name. He will not be a negligent God. It's like, oh, dog on it. Doug, I'm sorry. I was busy this week. I wasn't good to you this week. I'm sorry. Like, he's never going to do that. He's going to link how he provides for you and for me with the glory of his name. And he will do nothing to diminish his name. So that's how our God provides. And I think this is the most important part of this morning. How can we know? What's the evidence from our hearts that we know, not just true, false, is God good, but that are we tasting the goodness of God. There's three things we'll see. One is, I think, gratitude. We'll see gratitude as a constant in our lives. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. If you look through the Bible, one of the dangerous places in our lives, a slippery slope in our lives, is when we stop thanking God. If we stop thanking God, that leads us to some pretty dark places pretty quickly. I remember um, one of my graduations, I can't, I a couple of them, uh, but I remember thinking like all this, you're getting cards and you're getting all this, but I remember thinking like this, I, you know, I kind of worked hard and I studied, but just thinking of all the people in my life that helped me get there, like all the teachers or all that my parents sacrificed. Um, on my birthday, I call my mom. I try to call her right away. It's like, you did all the work on my birthday. I mean, all I did was show up, right? And so, and so um, I think that's, a, that's an attitude in our heart that, that God would love to see us have, that there's a constant gratitude that we realize we were in sin. We were his enemies. And he had Jesus die for us. And look at all that he's piling on. Salvation would be enough. But look at all that he's doing for us on top of knowing him through Jesus Christ. And, and so Deuteronomy chapter 8 
is a passage where God is warning his people right before they enter the promised land, before they go and build their big homes and have their very successful careers, he warned them and he said this, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And so maybe that's a word to you graduates, and maybe you're already there, um, but that you realize this isn't just about you this weekend. This is also about how good God has been to you in giving you the teachers, giving you the resources to accomplish this goal. So gratitude is going to be there if we understand God's good. The second one is this. I think there'll be a joy in our obedience. There'll be a joyful obedience. Let me just ask you this question. What is it that keeps you from disobeying God? What keeps you from disobeying God? So what keeps you from just gossiping, like going out of here today and just ripping everybody you can think of? Like, why wouldn't you do that today? Or why wouldn't you cheat on your taxes? Um, why wouldn't you, somebody cut you off today, just go out and just slug the guy? <laughs> why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you download some porn this afternoon? What, what keeps you from, from sinning? It's interesting, Psalm 34, verses 12 and 14, it says this, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he's asking, who among us wouldn't love to have full days, long days, good days? Well, if you want those things, then obey. You know, that there's, there can almost be a, a selfish motivation behind obeying God, that God is good. And so when he gives us standards, it's because he wants to bless us. He's leading us to a good place. Um, I got to meet a couple for the first time a few weeks ago. I've known of their families and had high regard for their families, but they are engaged and getting married soon. And it was my first time to meet them as a couple. And so I don't assume, um, with them, didn't assume that they understood God's standard, that God says um, sex is for marriage. And so in your dating days and engagement days, you, you do not have sex because God says you wait until you're married. And so we just talked about that, and both of them said, yep, we've made that commitment, we have that, that covenant, we've drawn our boundaries in our relationship, and um, but it was fun to hear the guy plays on a sports team, and so when he was with some of his teammates, and he was at college, like, a lot of the people didn't understand that, like, they used to get a lot of, wait, you're doing what? You know, like, it didn't make any sense. You're waiting for what? You know, why are you doing that? And so, just kind of fun hearing about those conversations that come up, but, but that's an example of that that would it be fun to have sex before you're married? Would that feel good? Would there be pleasure in that? Absolutely there would be, but that is not, that's, that would be what the Bible calls pleasure for a season, that sin is pleasurable for a season, but sin has consequences. So when God draws a line, it's not to be mean to his kids, or he's not drawing standards and saying, let's watch them, they won't be able to make that one. Let's, let's watch them fail on that one. He's drawing lines because he wants to bless his kids. And he wants to do good things for his kids. And so there's a whole new reason to obey is that I love God. I'm grateful to God for what he's done for me. I want to show him respect. Maybe sometimes you obey out of fear of being caught, fear of the consequences. A whole new, and I think of really probably the strongest motivation to obey is that because the goodness of God looks better than the goodness of sin. 
Once we're at that point, then I think that's when we really start seeing closing the window steps to porn-free living. The author is Tim Chester. He, he's an, an amazing author. He wrote a book called You Can Change. And this is one of his premises that when we see the goodness of God, that that can be what motivates our obedience. And so as I read his quote here, it's going to be about porn, but if that's not your besetting sin this morning, if that's not what you fight with to see, is God really better than this? Then insert your own, whatever your battle is. But here's some things he says, that in order to see victory over pornography, you need to cultivate the discipline of engaging your hearts in the beauty and the goodness of God. Battling porn in our lives is not an exercise in denying pleasure. It's about fighting pleasure with a greater pleasure. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, we fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We don't need to say to ourselves, I should not use porn. We should say to ourselves, I don't need to use porn because God is bigger and because God is better. So that's a second if I am really trusting in the goodness of God, and once that starts kicking in, we're going to see kind of a whole new way of fighting sin in our lives. So there'll be joyful obedience, there'll be gratitude. And the last one is there'll be courage. There'll be a whole new courage uh, to enter in. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's courage. God is on your side. And the reason we know he's on our side is verse 32. He didn't spare his own son, but he freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? So here's the pattern that happens. When you respond to God's goodness through the gospel, and he offers you forgiveness, when you step into that relationship with God, the closer, I think, that you get to God, one of the signs you're getting closer to God is that he, the supreme command is love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And then right after that, it's, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think the closer you get to God, then I think the more you're going to be aware of people around you that are hurting, people that do not know that there is a good God. And, and maybe even in this day and age, some people that are in some very dark and painful places. And I think what happens is that God, as he draws you in with his goodness, so overwhelms you with goodness that your next step is to go, and who can I serve? Who can I help? Who can I be as generous with as God has been generous uh, with me? And in many of these places in today's world, it's going to take sacrifice. Because as you get closer to Jesus, you realize in order to be good to you, he left heaven, he, he left everything, he gave his life for you on the cross, uh, he, he, he just emptied himself for you. And the more you're aware of that, the more you're blown away by that, the more you're overwhelmed with his goodness, then I think what happens is that he starts doing that in your life. He starts giving you courage so that you start replicating what he has done for you. So many examples of that in this church. I mean, some of that is a financial thing that are we gonna keep more and more for ourselves or are we gonna invest where so many of you, for example, are sponsoring orphans in Ethiopia or you know, you've heard of the families and the ministry that's starting to grow in Haiti with orphans there, that's exciting. Or as a church, we're helping with Rafa House in Cambodia, dealing with girls that are being rescued out of human trafficking. At a graduation party yesterday, was hearing from a family that is coming alongside a first grader at Faith Academy. And this first grader has a single mom. She's working a couple jobs. She's trying to get her life 
on track, but here's this boy that often needs rides and needs help. And this family, again, it's not easy. And there's a lot of days where the schedule gets changed at an instant. Uh, and these, this family has their own kids, but coming right alongside this, this young guy and really helping him navigate these early years, coming alongside and helping bless this single mom who's trying to follow the path that God is laying before her. So uh, it's awesome when you see that. Again, that's another sign that you'll see courage, that you're willing to take risks if they're financial or if it's your time, but you're stepping into places to help, to help other people. Um, I came across, uh, and I just ordered the book, but I read excerpts from it this week. It's, I'm excited to read it. Maybe some of you have. It's called Survivor's Club. It was written by a guy named Ben Sherwood. He's not a Christian. He's LA Times reporter. This book was a New York Times bestseller. But basically, it's a study on who survives. Like, who survives plane crashes? Who survives, like, just huge traumatic events in their lives? Just what are the patterns of people who survive? And again, he entered this without a... You know, he's not a strong person of faith. He says he'll pray when airplanes take off <laughs> right before they land. But that's about the extent of his relationship with God. So, but what he was, the biggest factor in survival that he found uh, was faith. Again, survival of an intense medical diagnosis or a car crash or a plane crash. With plane crashes, the other variables are be 12 rows within an exit, be physically fit, and the younger you are, that you get out, okay? So work out, get a good seat assignment on your next flight, right? So for some reason, right-handed people survive a little longer than left-handed people. That's another kind of quirky thing he had. But, but what was absolute was by far, in fact, 75 to 80% of the survivors pointed to a faith in God as being their number one reason for surviving. And he couldn't believe that. So part of his research took him to this guy named Ray Smith, who has trained uh, people in the Navy for years. He's written a whole manual on how to survive on land and at sea. And so he's been very close with people that have survived POW camps, all this stuff. So he went and asked him, what do you think is the number one reason why people survive? And without batting an eye, he just said, faith in God. In fact, when he wrote this whole manual, to do this tra training in the Navy, he insisted that the first thing written in this training manual was Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. His superiors and the publisher both pushed back hard in that. You cannot start this manual like that. He says, well, then it's pointless because this is the clearest number one determiner and if somebody is going to survive or not is they have a faith in God. And I think, I think that's, that's powerful that that's even being discovered outside of church walls, that, that when people have a confidence in the goodness of God, it truly propels you to take the goodness of God to places where this world is the darkest. You know, again, I talked about the persecution of Christians around the world. It's at an all-time high. I think we are learning from watching our brothers and sisters in other cultures truly cling to the goodness of God. When I've preached this spring, we've referred to a couple of different times the 21 Egyptians that were martyred by ISIS uh, in those orange robes and beheaded. Um, again, they, they did an interesting study. They went back to the village where 13 of those 21 Egyptians were from. And the reporters that went were expecting to find a bunch of anger and bitterness and resentment. And what they found instead were two different responses. One, obviously there was grief. And there were stories from moms like just talking about how her husband is now gone, that he had gone to provide an income and send it home to the family. So obviously there was grief there at the loss. 
But the other thing that surprised the reporters was there was excitement. And the excitement was that through the death of these 13 from their village, the message of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God was being trumpeted all over their country. And they said, as God is writing the story of describing and explaining his goodness to our people, our villagers, people in our village got to be a part of that. And we are so excited about that. Heard another powerful story this week. The gospel is spreading in the country of Iran in unprecedented ways in the house church movement. And there was a story about two women. Um, it comes from a ministry that, that trains, I, 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 how do you say it, Iranis? Iranis. And then they go back and reach their own people. And so there are these two women especially that were really good at distributing New Testaments. The two women alone had distributed 20,000 New Testaments. And, and the hunger for the word of God is spreading like crazy throughout all of Iran. But then they got captured and they got put in prison. And right away you think, oh no, God, what are you doing? God, where's your goodness? What's going on here? And this is powerful. As these two women were in prison, they continued to talk about their faith. And so some prison guards were just blown away by the life that these women were leaving. So these prison guards were not Christians, watching these Christian women live out their faith. And so all these cells are monitored with cameras and microphones. So they wanted to hear them talk, though. They had questions for them. So they took them into a hallway where there were still cameras, but no microphones. And they made them turn away from the cameras so that the guards couldn't read lips. And they just started asking them questions. Tell us about your faith. Tell us about this Jesus Christ. And these women got to lead all of their guards to Christ by just telling them the story, by just living it out. And the other cool thing that happened is the day after they got arrested for passing out Bibles, the main newspaper in Tehran front page headlines, do not read these books. And there were two pictures of these red Bibles they were passing out. Free advertising, right? So as soon as you're told not to do something, you want to go do it. But again, just women so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that they're just courageously laying down their lives so that more and more people can find out about the goodness of God. So our shepherd our shepherd is amazing. He just wants to provide for us so bountifully and so extravagantly that we can just be set free from fear, live courageously, that we can fight sin with a whole new reason, and that we can be grateful people that truly say to the people around us, magnify God with me. Let's exalt his name together. So let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, I, um, yeah, that one verse is so with many things that we so desperately need just to be constantly reminded that you are a good God. And again, God, my prayer has been that we don't just leave here true, false, is God good, but that we leave here saying, taste and see that the Lord is good, that it really would light us up in places in our heart, that we fight sin differently, we live courageously, that we're truly grateful people, that the gauges would just be on full because you are, we are so overwhelmed with how good you are. So God, I thank you for people in this church that are living that way, that are firing me up. I, I just pray for some of us in the room this morning that are in verse four, we're in the valley of the shadow of death, maybe right now not seeing. God, when are you gonna be good? to me, God, in fresh ways, open their eyes, remind them of how good you are. So do these things, please, Lord, to make your name great throughout Iowa City, throughout the world. Thank you for being such a good God to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. 
If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.